Jeremy N. Smith, and this is the Stimulus and Response Podcast, part public therapy session, part idea and story exchange on the best parts and best ways of being human and being alive. Last week, my co-host Damon Valentino and I discussed some of my float tank experiences, that is, hanging out in a sensory deprivation chamber and waiting for insight to come. Well, Damon is off this week, and we're featuring a conversation I had with the founder of the float tank I went to. Matt Gangloff, but float tanks themselves are only a minor part of the conversation. Matt is a U.S. Army veteran who's dug deeper, more personally, and more honestly than anyone I know about how to turn trauma and stress into insight and wisdom. Just a warning, this conversation touches on thoughts of suicide and violence against others. On the upside, it also gets to the meaning of life. So if you stick around, grab a way to take notes if you can. Matt packs so much hard-earned wisdom into half an hour. I'm just honored I could be the conduit to get his words to you. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Can you describe your first float tank experience? Sure. The reason I was drawn to it initially was there were some really interesting case studies about veterans who are using this to deal with PTSD. So that's why I was drawn to it. I just never thought, I thought this was like an L.A. I assumed it would never make its way to Montana. Like it just wouldn't happen. And then the woman I was dating at the time found out there was one in Whitefish. And so at at this time, I'm a year out of college and I'm working in a white collar IT job near six figures, like everything you could hope for a Missoula kid graduating college. Like you couldn't ask for more. And I was absolutely miserable, miserable. And, and mostly it was stress. The, the feeling that I had, like the stress level that I was at consulting in a completely safe environment was as high, if not higher than I experienced in combat. Like I'm not exaggerating because you're no longer able to distinguish between types of stress that will kill you, like events that will kill you. And those are just inconvenient. You measure them by the same mile markers. So that's problematic. And so it was my birthday. I think I was turning 30. She booked me a session at the place up in Whitefish. We went up for the weekend. We stayed in a cabin that was outside of cell service. So for the first time, I wasn't attached to my laptop and my cell phone from 6.30 in the morning to 9 o'clock at night, including weekends. And so I had three days of that. And then I went and I floated in, in the float tank there. And, and so you know, it brings you in. You kind of get acquainted with the room. There's the shower. There's the bench. There's the towel. There's the earplugs. Get in the tank. And I shut the lid and I'm just in blackness. That's interesting. That's a very novel experience, a feeling of floating there in, in nothing. And over time, what is meant to happen with the float tanks is they're kept at such a temperature that there shouldn't be very much difference between the air and the water. That barrier should melt away. And it should also come close to mirroring the surface of your skin. So 93 and a half to 94 and a half degrees. And that happened for me on my first float re- really quickly. I hit that comfortable space where I was devoid of as much of the sensory environment as you can. You can never get it to the zero, but you can lose a whole hell of a lot of it. 
And I remember the feeling of every thought that ran through my head was filling this entire new space. It wasn't restrained to my cranium. Like it was bigger. It, they were becoming bigger. And I noticed, man, the composition of all of these thoughts is unbelievably negative. Life or death, good or evil, it was dark. And I'm sure there was many more insights that came with that. But the one I remember explicitly is for the first time in my life, I realized that I was experiencing thoughts. I wasn't the thought itself. You know what I mean? Yes. But I'd love to hear it in your words or your understanding at the time. So when you have a thought like, I am hungry, I am whatever, you become that thing. And, and for the first time ever, I felt like I had a little bit of standoff, just enough standoff from that, that it was, it was something I was observing or experiencing, not what I, not, not all of me. Once I learned that, the thoughts started to quiet down and, and my shoulders started to sink. And I realized, oh my God, all the tension that I hold in my face and my jaw and my neck and my shoulders all started to melt away. And I was in this blissed out state that I'd never experienced before, where my mind was quiet, my body was relaxed, and I felt like I was there for the first time ever. And there, I mean like that moment. I wasn't in the past or in the future. But then I snapped out of it because this is what happens. Because a thought got me. It was like, I'm starting to get hungry. I'm going to want to eat after this. And then I started thinking about where I might like to eat. And then I started thinking about the environment in the place that I might like to eat at, where this is my old PTSD brain, where it's like, it's going to be loud. My ears are going to start ringing. It's going to feel like the world is closing in on me. There's going to be people there that might be drunk. They might be aggressive. I'm envisioning some guy coming too close to me and what I'm going to do, you know, how I'm going to kill him with my bare hands, essentially, and what exit I'm going to go out after I did it. Wow. And as I started running that script, I realized, oh my God, this is the script I run 100% of the time. I run everything to its most fatal possible conclusion. And along with it, my body started to react. So my shoulders came back up. I was clenching my fists for the first time in that hour. My jaw had, had tightened and, and settled the way it was. And I realized, oh my God, this is the state that I live in all the time. And so that was my first float experience. I realized how stressed out I was all the time. Mm. So for you, it led to this diagnosis, stress, stress, stress. But was it also a cure? Did that combination of experience and realization relax you? It was great. It was fantastic. We talked about it the whole way driving home. I was over the moon. And one of the things that I noticed that was so cool is I was addicted to nicotine for years. I chewed tobacco from 15 to 30. And on that drive home from Whitefish to Missoula, I forgot to chew. It didn't even come into my mind. And then what happens when you go back to work? I felt better. I felt incredible. I was not stressed at work for probably the first time ever. But I was just sitting there at my desk and I was watching this girl who I went to college with. We graduated at the same time, took the same job. And she by all measures, has a wonderful life. She's married. She has beautiful kids. Her husband's successful. She's got one of the jobs that is highly prized. They're, everything's great. And the look on her face was the look on the face of somebody who'd just seen their best friend die. And that is when it clicked for me. Oh my God, not only am I stressed, 
but everybody around me is stressed to the same degree, if not more. The only difference between the two of us is I feel like I have a license to be that stressed out because of some of the things that I've been through and they don't. And that's the really dark part of this. Right. Because how do you deal with your problems if you don't feel like you're worthy of even having problems? I think the most common method to enlightenment isn't float tanks or meditation. I think it's trauma. Mm. That's my story. That's most people's story once you scratch the surface. Because why are they searching for something? I think that's beautifully put. And I think something else that you've put really beautifully is you don't have to have hung out in Baghdad to have experienced trauma and that being born can be fairly traumatic. Uh, And people have a lot of barrier to self-care. There's the saying, we compare our our insides to other people's outsides. And we do that in a negative comparison. We do it both ways, which is so funny. We both like, they're so amazing and I suck, but we also do it like, They've had it so much harder than me. I'm not worthy of care. And you have the luxury of having an objectively, almost completely universally recognized traumatic experience. And that's quite liberating. It's your unfair advantage. People say that must be so hard. But at the same time, you, you have their sympathy. Sure. Can you expand on what you mean by trauma being the pathway? And then also because people are often blind to it until they get super kneecapped by it, how you see it and all the different forms you see it. Sure. So this is as concisely as I can describe how the universe works. Comes in a couple of stages. The first being trauma. We all get it. I mean, just read the Buddha. Our, Our thoughts create the world around us. And the color of those thoughts is usually a condition of what happened to us when we were at our most vulnerable. Mm. If you were abused as a kid, the world is a dangerous place. If you were not, maybe less so. I really don't think that anybody gets out of childhood trauma-free. It's just a matter of which flavor you get. I also think that we choose to take the embodiment that we get in life. And I think the reason that we choose it is because it comes with a very specific set of trauma and that creates the preconditions for us to work out. And that's the meaning of our life. It's like a time travel movie. We're here to work out everything that happened before we knew we were here to work everything out. I also think that this trauma is multi-generational in nature. Mine is my grandfather was a Korean War vet who traumatized my father, who traumatized me and my brother, who both ran off and joined the army and fought another war. And now here we are dropped back into society with just the right conditions to work all of that out. You said there were two stages. Is that both of them or just step one? That's the first step. Trauma creates the world around us. The second step is stress. We experience the the signs and symptoms of stress when we're reminded of the trauma. You'll notice this because your jaw will tighten, your shoulders will come up, they'll hunch forward. And stress is a difficult one because it's very low resolution in nature. It just feels all around bad and you don't know why. So instead of dealing with the stress head on, what seems that people do as a 
school is they develop coping mechanisms to deal with that stress. Again, those coping mechanisms were most likely developed in childhood in our most vulnerable states, and they were all about one specific thing, which was how to survive. Which makes sense. Survival is important. But there's a problem with the coping mechanisms because we tend to gravitate towards the ones that are easy and not good for us. Right. Beer, not broccoli. And I think there's something to be said about the fact that that initial trauma, usually what that does to people is it gives them a very negative internal self-dialogue that they use as a reason that coping mechanisms like drinking too much or smoking cigarettes or eating like shit or whatever doesn't really matter because they're not that valuable to begin with. They're not that valuable. You mean the person? I am not. Yeah, I am not right, worthy right, right. of being taken care of appropriately, which leads to the last step on the journey, which I call self-hatred or self-attack. So we are stressed. We don't know what to do about the stress. So we lean on our coping mechanisms. At some level, we know that those coping mechanisms are not helping. They're actually making things worse. And so we say, what a piece of shit are you that you'll just keep smoking? You'll keep drinking. You'll keep whatever this negative behavior pattern is, this way of dealing with people, your anger, your whatever, whatever your coping mechanism is, porn, Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, Tinder, fill in the blank with whatever you do. That's not helping. It's actually making something worse. And I'm actually a bad person because I've chosen to deal with this problem in that way. That, those last two or three steps create a self-reinforcing loop where the only thing that will shut off that negative inner self-talk is more of the coping mechanism, which makes you hate yourself more when you wake up and you're hungover for the 65th day in a row, which the only thing that will solve that is more of the coping mechanism. And this is addiction. And, and the ultimate end to this like self-hatred stop is a suicidal thought, right? And I think that it's through that suicidal thought that it will transport you back through trauma, the first step on the journey. And that's what we should actually be doing with our time here on earth is at the point of stress, recognizing that what's going on is we're being invited back to a past trauma that we haven't processed yet so that we can do whatever processing we need to do and free ourselves from that loop. This is not a unique concept I think maybe at least the four stages as I've described them is unique, but the idea that self-transcendence comes through that point is not new. Eckhart Tolle is the best example of this. He said, it was the thought, I can't live with myself any longer, which made me question who is this self that I can't live with. And that thought was what created his awakening. I had the same experience. And that's when the idea of opening your own float center is born? My plan was I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can. I'm going to put away as much money as humanly possible. And then I'm going to quit and I'm going to start the float center in Missoula. It's funny because at that point now you have an intention and a plan. I would think your mind be racing with excited energy. And so it's also not escaping thinking at all. It's immersing in something different. The way that I like to describe this is I thought that the way for me to manage stress was to quit my job and start a business that 
specialized in helping other people manage stress and find these states of consciousness that we're talking about. The flaw in that logic, as I'm sure you can see, is that me being less stressed and doing that as a job for other people, those two things do not necessarily end in the same place. In fact, I was more stressed even after that. I started Enlightened Lab. I got married and then very shortly afterwards got divorced and the business was failing. I was a full-blown alcoholic at this point. And that's when I realized stress creates amnesia. You don't remember who you are when you're stressed. I love that insight. Stress creates amnesia. You don't remember who you are when you're stressed. But the experience itself had to be excruciating. Yeah, I would just gotten divorced. I had to move out of my apartment. I had nowhere to live. I was sleeping in an unfinished back storage room at the lab. And again, here I am three years after this watershed moment of life can't get any shittier that I'm right back at the bottom where I started. How far did you go into losing yourself and how did you find yourself again? I'll never forget it. I was, again, I was living, I was living in an unfinished room in the back. And so I was there late at night and I was drunk. I was sitting in the sauna, eating an ice cream sandwich and drinking a beer, watching workaholics on the iPad and just out of nowhere, the thought, just kill yourself already, just pop into my head. And I caught it, which is great. But what it made me think was, oh, great. Here we go again. You're right back where you were. You're going to have to go through this whole process all over again of telling people that your life fell apart and you're starting completely over and, and here you are. And at that point, I was just like, it's live or die. And so I took a absolute fistful of mushrooms and I played it out and I came up, I realized, oh my God, this might be the time when I actually kill myself. Mm. And then I watched myself commit suicide and I experienced that. And then I realized that I experienced that from a place, like I watched the entire thing happen of complete non-attachment to the fact that it happened. Like I just was there Mm -hmm. and I, I lived through it. And the gist was, yeah, man, that's a thing that could happen if you so choose. And that would be okay too. Like total equanimity. I just didn't give a shit one way or the other. It didn't matter. Everything just was, there was no more good and bad. And so it showed me that dark scene. And then it said, but look at this. And it was how I, over the next couple of years, would put my life together. I would quit drinking. I would figure out a way to rescue this business from the brink. I would figure out how to make money. I would fix the shit with my family. I would get past all. And, and what good would that do for the world? And then you wake up and it's like, choose what you do today. You know what hell looks like. You know what heaven looks like. And, and now make a choice. What are you going to do? And over the last two years, I've been systematically acting out that vision And I'm much closer to the one of heaven now than I am to the one of hell. What happened logistically, montage style, Mm. in those past two years Mm. that changed? Was that the nine to five doing things differently or staying with it or what? Everything. I mean, the very first thing, 
it's all about following your conscience. So whatever comes up into awareness, I think we have two voices in our head and you can tell the difference. Or like left and right shoulder. (laughs) But you know which is which, you know? And I just started actively following the one that I knew that was good. And one of the first things that it, it told me is like, you need to love everybody. That's another thing that happened throughout this process is I stumbled upon Ramdas and man, we could do a whole hour on that. But so basically I found a teacher and I started doing what he said and what he says to do is to love everybody and tell the truth. And so that's what I started doing. I would sit at the lab on the couch and I would look out the window and people would walk by and I would practice loving. And what inevitably will happen when you practice loving people is there's some people it will be easier and some people will be harder. Like 70 year old guy with a big gray beard and a Vietnam vet hat. Very easy for me to love that dude. I know where he's been. We have the same story. I can love that dude. Even knowing how dark his shit is, if it's anything like me, no problem loving him. The people you do have problems loving are those people who remind you of parts of yourself that you wish weren't. So for me, people who are overweight, people who are obviously too invested in their their self-image, like they're shallow, drunks, couldn't do it. It immediately, I would see them. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to love this drunk fuck that's just walking by. <laughs> and I couldn't do it. And what I realized over time was, oh, these people that you're struggling with doing this with, Those are the parts of yourself that you don't want to recognize. And their existence makes it more possible and likely that the same thing could happen to me. Mm -hmm. And then I was able to let that go. And then I could love anybody, Mm -hmm. even when people were actively hostile towards me. I loved it. Mm -hmm. And nothing had turned around for me at this point. I was still drinking. I was still in a very precarious financial position. I'll never forget. I had less than a couple hundred bucks in my bank account. But I, I realized that Albertsons at a certain time of night, they discount all of their deli sandwiches because they got to get rid of them for that day. And so with maybe two, $300 in my bank account and no prospects of where the money would come to replace that, I was going and buying out all of the deli sandwiches and driving around town and hand them out to people that were mm. sitting around. And I mean, this old lady that I met and befriended, she had this great tradition. She would wrap Snickers bars with all the ones that she had saved throughout the year. And so that's what we did on Christmas and, and Thanksgiving and New Year's. We'd walk around handing out candy bars with money wrapped around them. And I think that what happened was the reason that you practice loving other people is because for most of us, because of this trauma that we've experienced, you're, you're last in line. <laughs> and, and eventually you'll flip the mirror, as they would say. You're able to see, whoa, who is this person that can love everybody else unconditionally, but can't love themselves? And I had that experience, which was in and of itself another awakening. And then the obvious next question is, well, if you loved yourself, what would you do differently? Mm-hmm. And I said, the first thing that popped into my head, which was, I wouldn't drink like this. I wouldn't do this to myself. And that was Waterworks Central because I have done this for 10 years. I don't think I can, I don't think I'm capable. And a voice from within, which had now become a constant fixture in my, my life since this time, 
the only way I can describe it is it's an inner voice. Sometimes I say it's Ramdas talking to me, but he just said, you're stronger than you think you are. And I've been on that path ever since. Mm. What is that path? Is it just listening to that voice? Is it believing in yourself or is it a specific set of actions? This is old fashioned self-help, but it works. What is the one thing that I could do that would have the greatest possible impact on my life? And then I've added a second piece to that, or I think I probably stole it, which is what is the one thing that I would do that I actually would do? Right. (laughs) Because it's very easy to be like, oh, I should quit drinking. But if the answer is I don't have it in the tank to do that right now. okay, put it aside. What would you do? And and inevitably what ends up happening is you shrink your time frame and you shrink the complexity of the task until it's something like, I want to take three deep breaths. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how you do it. And eventually those things snowball until you wake up one day and you go, holy shit, I've completely changed my life. And what's really cool This is where this has to be some divine order to this because those snapshots that I was having of different points along this way of sorting myself out and and putting things back together and doing good things for the world, I saw them in that moment and I've experienced them since. For lack of a better way of saying it, I'd seen the future and I had acted faithfully and I arrived at that point. A key thing being you had acted though. You didn't just leave whether you lived or died, got sober, got straight, all of that to fate. I think you get to choose in these experiences of transcendence, you get a snapshot into all possible futures. I think you get to choose which one it is. And this is the dark night of the soul experience for a lot of people. And this is where a lot of people give up on this path. They think that aiming at the good necessitates the end of suffering. It's the opposite. Mm. It just changes the type of suffering you experience from what I would call unnecessary suffering, which is the suffering you experience when you're not being all that you could be. And the disconnect between what you could be and what you are, you feel the weight of that all the time and you suffer from it. The other kind I call righteous suffering, which is no less suffering. It's just you've picked the direction in which you're going to suffer. And hopefully that's towards the good, right? So quitting drinking for me or quitting chewing for me or figuring out how I was going to dig myself out of debt or any of the things that I've done, I suffered the whole time. It wasn't easy. Never, not for one second, but I'm like falling forward. You know what I mean? I'm suffering in the direction of what I think is the best possible good. And that's the difference. Before I was suffering towards hell (laughs) and now I'm suffering towards the best possible. So what happened? And by that, I mean, spoken really well about the most important thing, which is what happened in your head. Mm. What happened that a video camera would see? Did you, for example, did you stop Mm. drinking? Did the business finances somehow change? Yeah. Well, the first thing that happened was I sat in meditation for three days. Um, And what does that mean? Where? At home, laying in bed. If I needed to use the bathroom, I did. If I needed to eat, I did. If I was tired, I slept. But I hit a breaking point when I quit drinking. I sat in bed for three days and I did this practice that I've created based on Tara Brock. I don't know, come across her. And it was basically stress would come up and I would walk that back through the traumatic point that it 
inevitably stemmed from. And I would feel how that felt. And then that one would be gone. And all of the downstream effects of that one are gone too. So I can give you a quick example. During this period, because I had lost everything financially, I was living with roommates, right? Back living with roommates, 30 whatever years old. And one of them had a girl over and I was walking to the kitchen to get water. And they asked what I had had for dinner. And I said, a salad. And she called me a pussy and an anger through the roof. Right. And I watched myself go through the process of like, fuck it. I'm just going to go get a drink or I'm going to watch a movie. I'm going to, I reached for my phone. I was like, Ooh, that's a coping mechanism. Oh shit. Well, let's go get a drink. It's probably time. Ooh, that that's a coping mechanism. Oh, and then I reached for my computer. It's like, Ooh, that's just the same thing as that, but just slightly different. And I said, what if I just sat with this for a second? And inevitably what happened is when you sit with those things, you don't try to change the way that they feel. You just experience them as they are in the body. Deeper layers of truth will start to get revealed. And the first layer was, oh my God, you have people in your life that introduce chaos that you don't like. It makes you angry. Wow, that's a deep, that's, most people won't even admit that. Mm. And then the next layer was like, okay, if you can accept that, here's the next one, which is uh, you've never lived alone. You live with roommates now. You were married before that. You college roommates before that. Before that, you were in the army. And before that, you were in your childhood home. You've never lived alone ever. Oh, Jesus. Can I accept that? Yes. And this is the terror brought. Can I accept? Just Mm -hmm. acceptance, right? And then the, the next one was, oh, though you have never been alone, your father's anger and the abuse cut that relationship. Mm -hmm. So you didn't have a relationship with him, which you wanted. You couldn't tell your mom about it because she couldn't, she was trying to keep everybody together. So you had a disconnection with her. And then you and your brother dealt with this very different ways and decided to hate each other. So I was disconnected from him too. So it wasn't that I was just, oh, I was never alone. And I was suffering as a result of the people that I've let into my life. It's that I've never been alone, but I've always felt alone. Mm-hmm. And then, boom, here we are. Now we're in the truth, right? Mm-hmm. And I just felt how that felt. And it'd be four hours of mm. just feeling that. Mm. And so you get through that one. And then the things that would normally elicit that stress response are gone because there's no underlying trauma left. You've processed it appropriately, which seems to me to create a completely different cycle where the stages are healing, good stress, good coping mechanism, and self-love as the stages. So it's through that process, I think, that you completely flip from a negative loop to a positive loop. I love what you're saying. You brought so many hugely important things, and it also supports the pet theory I have. Mm. So, of course, I love it, too. It's actually hard to have a feeling Mm. for more than a couple minutes at a time. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm so upset. I'm so sad. Okay, just do that. Yep. Just have that feeling. Yeah. And after five minutes, you're like, I kind of want to have tuna fish for lunch. It's funny because that was such an important thing. Yeah. And obviously in the ginormous things, yeah. it's four hours. Yeah. But for a lot of things, even really, really big things, it's four minutes. And even four minutes would almost be guru level. It's more like 40 seconds. Yeah. Whereas alternatively, you can have that feeling 
for five seconds of every minute mm. for the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> and if you do the math, you're like, oh, that's hours a week forever. And so it's also a funny thing in like four minutes, you can do like, oh, I can, I can just do this for this life. Right. Versus I don't have four minutes. I only have five seconds. I'm just going to do it every minute. Yeah. So you do these big lifts, you do your laundry, your emotional laundry and not drinking is doing something and it's also not doing something. Yeah. So for example, you go to meetings or you figure things oh. out or you just, it's cold turkey and it's, and it's, and you're doing turkey. this stuff. Did that work for you? Yeah. I mean, honestly, from the point of getting this message to yeah. quitting, that was longer lift. Again, it goes, it goes back to faith because remember the statement, you're stronger than you think. Well, how do you figure out if you're stronger than you think? You act, right? And if you act, if you just don't drink now in this moment, yeah. inevitably, you're going to get where you're going. And for me, that was the jump. After that, it was, oh my God, I feel great. And, and why didn't I do this 10 years ago? And then you realize why well, you didn't do it 10 years ago because you're you're one open wound those people like me that use i would argue any coping mechanism daily to manage the stress that they feel that's covering up most of the stress i mean it is a coping mechanism it creates the self-hatred but really what it's covering up is the stress so you feel the stress more acutely which sounds like a bad thing but if you adopt this philosophy of every time I encounter the stress, I'm going, I'm, I'm going to acknowledge it and accept it. And I'm going to go back through the trauma and actually deal with it. Quitting, taking the drinking out, just allowed more, allowed more of those experiences to happen. How does that help the business? Well, I had a whole lot more energy. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and a lot of this was loving people. There was loving myself and then remember the other thing was telling the truth mm. and this was really the first time in owning that it's a funny anecdotal story that's very quick but that this old lady friend that i made she's just this beautiful person it's like her own little guru and she was very much to me at that time she's into feng shui or something i don't even know but she said put this painting here on this north facing wall and then i want you but she bought me a chunk of iron ore i want you to put this below that painting and these two things are going to work together for prosperity. And so I was like, yeah, okay. I mean, I wouldn't take that shit from almost anybody else, but from her, I was like, this is just so adorable. I'm just going to play along. I remember day after day, I'd be working at the lab and I would look over because right next to the cash registry where I would check people out normally. And before I had been so worried about making money, I need to make money to survive. And I just said, you know what? fucking rocks doing its thing. I'm just going to be here with people. I'm going to see what happens. And inevitably what happened is I met a parade of people who are going through this exact same process that I was, who were coming to enlightenment through a traumatic experience. Mm. And I told the truth for the first time in my life about everything that I'd gone through mm. to people I didn't know on the spot. And you know what happened? The business doubled over the next year. Because I actually cared about who was in front of me. And I told the truth. I was loving them. And I told the truth. And that was the special sauce of this business. Is that there's people out there that are going through the same thing. And if you love them and you tell the truth, you'll be just fine. And by the way, I fail at this daily. I fall flat on my face more than I'd like to admit. But 
that's this is the point. This is what I'm working on. Love everybody. Mm-hmm. Tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Follow the good angel on your shoulder. Yeah. See what happens. That's my takeaway yeah. for the day by day plan. Yeah. Are you someone who also thinks X years yeah. out or whatever? Right. So I've developed a process of defining a vision for X years or months or whatever in the future. The idea is just aim as far out as you can see predictably. And then to revisit that each time you achieve that next goal. And I think what's really important in that is to come from a place where you're not setting that vision for the future based on what the ego wants, but what that better angel wants. Mm. And so in that psychedelic experience, I got the whole story Mm. and I know where the story ends and it's not something that I've ever shared publicly because it sounds so fucking crazy that it's almost an impossibility or sounds like an impossibility. It sounds full of ego. Honestly, I'm not even ready to, to adopt it fully. I'm just always taking the next step, but it has something to do with this intergenerational trauma. The world is such that wars are going to be fought mm. and what to do with the people who fight them, I think is my work here. So are you saying you want to have a suite of services for veterans? Suite of services is over specific. I think I'm sorting myself out and helping other people do the same. I think if we really knew what was going on here, wars wouldn't have to be fought in the first place. But if they were, that's what you would do with those people who come back you would show them the ultimate reality of the universe through this process that they already know so well. They already have the trauma. They just, there's a remedy that I think that my work on this planet to do is to figure out. So the point of entry might be a float tank like it was for you, but it doesn't have to be. I don't think it needs to be at all. These are all just methods. And the trick is not to get hung up on one method. It's to transcend the method. Like Ramda says, you ever meet an asshole yogi? <laughs> That's somebody who's trapped in their method. My work, I don't think, is promoting one method over another. I think mine is talking about what's on the other side of every method, regardless of which method you choose. Suffering, then insight or enlightenment, then suffering again, then enlightenment again. I think that's the nature of enlightenment. There's two different types. There's the abiding and the non-abiding. I had a non-abiding awakening, which means it happened. I saw through the window and then I was dropped back into myself. I'm my ego again. I'm me again. What we're all really looking for is that abiding awakening. That's really what people mean when they say enlightenment is they see past the veil. They transcend themselves they see the connectedness of the universe and they never go back to the way that they were before it's a greedy want if you ask me i feel very grateful that i even got to see what i saw and i think that there's something here with your conscience if you follow your conscience ultimately the greatest possibility is what emerges but 
you're going to feel doubt every step of the way, but choosing to take that next step anyway, that's faith. And I would go even one step further and say faith technically requires that you get where you're going. If you always just take the next step, mathematically, you have to arrive at some point. But where we get in trouble is feeling like we should have arrived sooner. I will try not to be greedy. Thank you, Matt, for taking these steps. Thank you for taking me with you. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. I hope everyone has found a bit of ease from stress or virtue in stress from this conversation and that you'll share your own highs and lows from listening and from living with us. Damon will be back next week and we'll take the conversation and exploration from there. Stimulus and Response is hosted by Damon Valentino and Jeremy M. Smith and produced by Matt Mullins of Black Rooster Productions. Please rate, review, and share the show. And please join us next time for another stimulating exploration of the best parts and best ways of being human and being alive.